Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 2, Intelligence Agencies and the Shift in World Order. to take a deep dive into this topic we have today with us the subject matter expert dr ekatrina matoi hi katrina welcome to the podcast uh hi omkar uh, thank you for having me likewise thank you very much for joining us and uh, giving us your precious time i know the experts uh, around the world have been a lot uh, busier these days especially due to the current climate of the world politics uh so yeah as we'll be taking a deep dive into this topic so can you please provide us a brief outlook on your journey as a researcher uh, and an expert in this uh, sector uh, actually i'm um, i have started around 20 years ago i have a ba in in uh, in um, foreign languages english and arabic section an ma in uh, in uh, political sciences security and diplomacy um specialization as well and uh, two phd's one of them in intelligence and national security and another one in near and middle eastern studies uh this is uh, when of course and also several certificates i don't want to name all of them <laughs> we don't have time uh regarding uh, my my um, professional experience uh, i used to work for a long period of time for companies from romania uh in relation with companies and state institution from the middle east uh the companies were producers of the military equipment so it was a tough uh, challenge for me i mean as well as a very uh, interesting this is why i pursued also an ma in marketing because i was i felt i felt at that point that it is necessary to understand the relation of marketing especially it's about military stuff um coming closely i have taught a, i've been actually member of the faculty of security and defense for 8 years at the national defense university in bucharest uh at the uh, communication section strategic uh, public and intercultural communication uh, uh, department influencing communication section uh i i uh, stopped last year to work for the national defense ministry as well because i thought as a, is a as a next step for me for my career and uh, since then i'm uh, I've actually I've started to act and to provide services as a political consultant in the Middle East as well as a region especially as well as a North Africa region and still I'm still teaching uh, I'm an associated lecturer at several universities from Romania and abroad and director of uh, program director of the Middle East uh, Economic and uh, Political Institute from Bucharest 
just I hope I, uh, I've been short, please. Yes. Uh, yes, definitely. I think like this is one of the extensive uh, expert, uh, you know, the portfolio I've ever heard, like, you know, two PhDs and, you know, wide variety and a range of expertise. I think generally in the security studies, we always observe that, you know, no matter how much ever things you do, it's always less. Uh, but I think like with experts like you, and it's a broad range of expertise that we can always discuss and have you on board. So, yeah, I think uh, you really are an inspiration, especially for our generation who have been, you know, on the way to the PhD or uh, around on the way, you know, to become a research scholar. So, yes, thank you very much again. <laughs> uh, thank so, you for my thoughts, please. Uh, to start with the questions, uh, like, uh, I'd like to, you know, start with the basic thing. Uh, so, why intelligence gathering is important and how these agencies play a key role in shaping the future of a particular nation or I would say, you know, general country as well? Uh, this question actually is not, uh, it's apparently it's easy to answer, you know, and still it's not that easy to answer. Why? Because gathering intelligence actually is not a new or contemporary practice, you know, it's a, a, a uh, it's a contemporary practice, but it's as old as our world it is. The only thing that has changed is the name of the formal entity that is receiving the intelligence, as well as the goals and the means used. And uh, also, I believe that to answer to your question may require a separate conference or a podcast for itself, probably an annual one, <laughs> since yeah. the intelligence uh, environment is a dynamic one. And uh, of course, goals and means have evolved in time. However, uh, if uh, we, I will try to stick on the schedule and to be short, uh, but still, I think that this question requires a more developed answer. Uh, and just I want to remind you of Sun Tzu. I'm pretty sure that you know about Sun Tzu. You know, you've heard about Sun Tzu and his, his book, The Art of War. And I quote, he who knows the enemy and himself will never be uh, will never in a hundred battles be at risk, right? Uh, and that uh, reflect the reason the trend of modern intelligence agencies. Uh, therefore, please allow me to complement this statement with a further opinion. Especially during peacetime, one should know at state level and facilitate the information of the population who the real enemies may be and how different interests can affect states or different segments of their population. And uh, although an intelligence agency should not fully disclose its intents and purposes, purposes the CIA mentioned um, on its website, and I quote, we are the nation's first line of defense. We accomplish what others cannot accomplish and go where others cannot go. We give the United States leaders and intelligence they need to keep our country safe the intelligence they need to keep our country safe. This is very important when you think about, while thinking about this, uh, the uh, intelligence agencies. Also, they say that um, their work is vital to the United States national security. And uh, therefore they are collecting and analyzing foreign, foreign intelligence and conduct covert action um, that uh, with a proposal that US policymakers, including the president of the United States, make policy decisions informed by the information they are providing. Uh, although this stance is probably very much simplified, it certainly illustrates what any person should expect from intelligence agency in the classical sense. But what it is 
what is it and that any person does not expect a, and an intelligence agency delivers. Without inviting to a confrontational approach, I would like to emphasize that on one hand, international collaboration is very important in order to achieve common goals like world peace and deadly climate change. You know, it's a trend these days in a meaningful way. But on the other hand, certain region countries or even groups may have different interests. And in order to pursue them, I would invite you to follow both the historical evolution of these interests, means of action and future perspectives from different, different angles of observation. Uh, as a conclusion to, uh, for this answer, for, uh, I would like to uh, underline the fact that intelligence gathering is both practice and constantly evolving science. While agencies might represent the first line, cases like Cambridge Analytica demonstrate that intelligence gathering, presumably a state affairs affair, might be performed in a non-conventional approach by various types of actors and various purposes. Therefore, we have to pay attention more to uh, companies, I mean, like private entities such as Cambridge Analytica, if they are private, of course. Uh, and not quiet to the state intelligence agencies, you know. Uh, this is uh, this is what I think, because uh, even though you know, uh, being sick, uh, intelligence agencies, they uh, should not, we should, and we know only those public information uh, they offer, uh, and they should not, uh, be, we shouldn't know what they are doing actually, because that's 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 the, the key for an intelligence agency. Still, they have a kind of formal, they have a um, certain delimited space where they are acting, how they are acting. While these private companies, these uh, private entities such as Cambridge Analytica, and, and this is just an example, are uh, actually, um, they are deserving our attention and also um, concerns, uh, Omkar. Yeah. Yes, uh, I think uh, what you have mentioned, especially about the international cooperation, as we, I, I see generally the communication platforms these days has bridged a lot of gap, uh, but it has also created some level of, uh, you know, threat as well from a national security perspective, the way people see, the way people say, and the way people consume the content. So with a historical footprint, how the digital world and open source tools have impacted the modern day intelligence agency, especially with respect to the information warfare? Uh, this is quite, uh, it's coming uh, after, I mean, it's an important question is completing the previous one. This, this is what I think, because uh, I consider uh, while we have already emerged in what one would call the virtual space, the real implications of this transformation I have mentioned, um, should one consider it as being a transformation require further analysis and adaptation in order to ensure that society is truly benefit from it. With this in mind, I would uh, like to make a clear distinction between various facets of digitalization. While in the relation between state and citizens, there are many steps that need to be taken in order to experience the real benefits, one needs to acknowledge that more or less legitimate interests emerge, emerge with the rise of internet and computers, right? Mm -hmm. It is obviously therefore difficult and difficult to enact proper legislation for an emerging phenomenon, but we can ask ourselves how did every citizen of the world benefited from digitalization? While some were not immersed in this environment and others enriched themselves 
the Z generation, for example, grew with the internet as previous generations grew with the TV. The major difference is that influencers and propagandists have no, now much more access to worldwide population and can focus their campaigns in an environment that is still poorly regulated. Should the Westphalian state still claim the, to guarantee the rights of their citizens, their representatives should massively step up the efforts to ensure not only proper education, but also real online security, cybersecurity. Taking the case of Europe, for example, neither the EU or, nor any particular state can do this relatively fast, since the European Union is lagging behind in operating systems, search engine technology, regulated cloud computing platforms, satellite networks to ensure safe data transmission, as I'm pretty sure that you know, they are much more aware than me. If this was to be seriously approached, really result, real results may be achieved in one decade at best from now on. Looking behind, beyond this foundation that is absolutely necessary when discussing about digital intelligence capabilities, we also need to scrutinize the way in which data is collected and processed. As the distinction between what was traditionally called democratic society and communist society becomes subject of debate from the perspective of surveillance, both online and offline, we can argue about the role of intelligence agencies in an environment that is increasingly monitored by various actors with different levels of social responsibility. If the intelligence agencies are supported politically and will manage to ensure the necessary information, counter-information, needs of states and societies, the societies may become more democratic in the online environment. Finally, on this topic, the information warfare may be also a matter of resources. I'm not going to develop more on information warfare because it's not, many people are associating information warfare with just with information, but it's not only related to information. It's about psyops in, uh, in operation. It's about also cyber uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, besides previously mentioned infrastructure imperatives, I consider that the human resource and education in the field of intelligence are key aspects that require long-term attention. That's a very interesting point uh, you mentioned about the infrastructure and all. I think this, this, all the factors and elements are something that are changing the dynamics in the international affairs. And I think with the current climate of the Ukraine, what is has been happening in Ukraine, uh, and especially the massive support of EU towards the Ukraine, can you provide a brief outlook on how security agencies should prepare to counter future threats similar to uh, what the European Union is facing at the moment? Well, usually uh, I'm pretty sure that you observe that I don't speak about uh, Ukraine crisis or conflict. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Because it's something that I have never seen uh, and I've never, uh, um, how shall I say, found uh, read about in my studies and I've, uh, I'm studying and reading you know, since I know myself, uh, perhaps since I was five years old, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. and it's still, it's very, very difficult to speak about what's happening over there still, moving uh, from intelligence agencies to security agencies in this discussion. Uh, requires much attention because I'd like to stress that modern security concepts are complex and this is not a simple uh, statement. We first, for example, had COVID crisis in which we all saw on TV Russian troops assisting countries like Italy, at least at the beginning of the pandemic. 
and then a conflict at the borders of the European Union. The pandemic itself was a security challenge, the conflict in Ukraine, another one, and a combination of the two, a completely different and more serious security threat. Yeah. The political decision of the European Union to provide support to Ukraine in the way that it did and still doing will probably be assessed by academics better, better in the next years. The, the event, this actually, the events are still ongoing. It's very difficult to assess something which is ongoing, the long car. Yes. Yeah, I understand uh, from this perspective. And, uh, it's a yeah. fresh subject. And, uh, but I was just curious, you know, th- that's the reason I uh, didn't uh, put up a lot of things, you know, in and around uh, Ukraine. But I was just uh, curious about this uh, whole topic. But I understand. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, if, if I may, uh, in any conflicts, any conflicts, taking sides or abstaining from taking sides, sides has political risks and consequences on card. Yes. Should the EU prevail along its ma- main allies, the UK and the US and the goal, in the goals it aimed, Europe will probably benefit from this stance. How much and in which manner it is difficult to predict, like I said previously. However, even in this positive scenario, we need to recognize two important aspects. Any war taking place from now on will accelerate climate change since logistics will still be based on fossil fuels and munition pollutes the environment. And secondly, Europe risks to face a long-term conflict area near its borders. It's <laughs> Please, I would like to remind you, my, my, my second PhD topic was regarding the, 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 actually I researched the reconstruction of the Iraqi army. It's very easy to conquer a country, but it's very difficult to maintain the control of that country. Let's think that Ukraine is going to support it by the United States and its allies, Europe, and so on and so forth. We're going to prevail and they're going to defeat Russia. Let's say that Vladimir Putin is going to uh, disappear from the political scene and is going to be judged by international court. And it's, uh, I don't know, uh, all of those that are responsible for what's happening over there. How we are going to control Russia? Of course, there are going to be companies that are going to control the, the resources, important and key resources of Russia. Still, how do we are going to control people like our Russians? Uh, if you are not able to control a, a few bunch of organization in Iraq or Syria or Yemen. Let's go further. Um, This letter security threat will have both economic and social consequences. In an environment with increased security threats, the most effective defense would be structural strengthening of the European Union. The role of intelligence agencies, because you are talking about them, can help improve security in the approaches at micro level, but ultimately the entire body will be able to handle a flu when it it is itself strong. And uh, I hope... It's enough for this question, uh, Omkar, because I, otherwise I'm going to speak all day. Yes. <laughs> no, I think like uh, we, we should have a different, uh, you know, session on this topic whenever the, you know, the issue is matured well enough. Uh, so, you know, a little bit uh, moving away from this topic, because I have been very curious about the world order, especially uh, to just touch up on this topic again, uh, but, you know, in a slight manner, not exactly in a way the previous question was. So do you think the Russian-Ukraine conflict uh, might trigger some extremist movement in the Central Asian region? And if so, like 
how the security agent, European security agencies will potentially react to such situations? Uh, actually, it's a very good question. Why? Because uh, I was thinking these days, I, um, uh, actually, I'm mapping uh, the extremist organization. I mean, you know, these terms, it sounds to me like we used to talk about the Islamist organization after the Cold War. Then we were talking about, uh, started to talk about uh, terrorists with the 9-11. Now we are talking about extremists and far rights. You know, it's it's only about term, the term that you are using and it has to be trendy. Uh, still, let's see, uh, um, for me, uh, and I was uh, um, making an analogy between extremist movements with Uber, you know, <laughs> when you need them, Uber is there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, from my hybrid warfare perspective, anyway, let's be a, let's answer in a serious way. The extremist movements appear in weak security environments, but may also be employed by non-legitimate interests to achieve goals in areas where they want to provoke chaos. Taking into consideration, for example, that the Taliban movement was deemed as extremist and or non-extremist through the Cold War. And afterwards, based on a short-term interest, calling an organization extremist or not has a short-term significance. But arming organizations and promoting violence on any scale makes a difference in global security landscapes nowadays. Taking taking, uh, into consideration that China is developing this region for its own economic interests, the rest of the world may see a benefit from remote conflicts in China's proximities areas. However, I do not consider the conflict from Ukraine has a real potential to trigger extremist movements because the the conflict from Ukraine is just a stop, you know, in a way. Somebody is making his way from, let's say, from Paris to, I don't know, uh, to Basel. And uh, between Basel and Paris, there is a station and the station is Ukraine. You have to imagine like that. And what's the role of extremist organization? Uh, this uh, extremist organization role is depending on the needs, uh, on the challenge appear on the road, on car. You have to imagine like that. Yes. So, um, like I said, I do not consider that this conflict uh, has a real potential to trigger. Peace and arming or disarming clandestine groups should be urgently negotiated anyway with superpowers like the United States, Russia, Federation, China, and enforced worldwide in a, an effective manner. Because uh, these days at the conference I've mentioned to you, I've participated as a speaker and as well as a, a pre- a present- uh, I, I deliver a presentation as well. I've spoke actually about the so-called uh, Islamic State uh, and uh, the, the significance of this type of organization. And I'm bringing it, bring it into discussion because I mentioned that uh, their significance uh, this type of organization significance is to avoid responsibility at the international level by those state actors that are behind this uh, behind this type of organization. Yes. So we have to think uh, in this way because otherwise, um, not only uh, perhaps today is about Russia or to Ukraine, and yesterday it was about Iraq and uh, other countries. Tomorrow, perhaps it is. A, it is about China as well as today. The other, the other day, perhaps it has to be uh, India because it is an emerging power and an extremely important power in the region. And not only the region has the has the potential to become a, a superpower. I mean, global power, India. This is this is what I think, of course. Yes, uh, as we are like you know hovering around the Central Asian region, 
so uh, and we are as, as we are approaching the main topic the world order so i think it's starting from over here so do you think like can us or a withdrawal from afghanistan be considered an intelligence failure and do you believe it has affected the world order given the fact that one of the world powers failed to eradicate terrorism in afghanistan uh, the question reflects actually the narratives from the public space on that you know uh what we had to accept as being as uh what's happening actually in afghanistan it was delivered to us starting with um, two years ago i think and especially when uh, the the us troops were withdrawn uh, last year right yes. still uh even uh, though the withdrawal of the us from afghanistan may be represented as an intelligence failure but also we can see it as a win for the industrial military complex yeah the big win all right yeah let's have a look just at the huge amount of money yes that we're spent right yeah. yes no definitely i think from uh, that point of view definitely it's a uh, you know bubbling topic and and with respect to aligning with this topic itself uh, because one of the big pause india being one of the emerging economies in asia i would say which also had like key economic ties with afghanistan and considering you know the latest movements that have been happening in between india and us they have signed multiple agreements not only in defense but in as well as in the space industry as well so do you think will india become one of the imported nations to cement the future world order aligned with the west because historically things have been little bit reversed like india has been a prominent defense partner with russia but now the things have been rapidly changing especially from the past decade so any thoughts on that um yes uh, uh, actually uh, i was following also what's happening in security council with those votes on different uh, resolutions and also i was i was surprised but not very much by the stance of india because it, it's part of brics right and also it is nuclear it is a nuclear power uh, while the world order may be a term characteristic to the 20th century i would like to remind you that actually it was very much uh, vehiculated during the last century still the way the planet planet will look in the 100 years from now on may be characterized at the best by world orders for other terms also the assumption that the west will have the same structure as today and that it will continue to dominate as it did in the 19th century is also an assumption that requires research it is our perspective that the west dominated 20th century as well but in fact the united states dominated a large part of the globe and the soviet union occupied a major land area india aims to become again a cultural power as it did in the past not align itself the west again right. it certainly plays a role in the balance of power between the west and china or russia or uh, russia but ultimately its aim is to remain neutral and develop independently on the world stage and i think this would be uh, the best cho- choice that india has um, uh, might take uh, d- during these moments it's very difficult because you know you may align with the west but let's have a look at the the indians the indian people um people generally tend not to forget the past and still though somehow the west seems to be 
uh, appealing the values and the past and the pain from the past, the scars of the past are not forgotten or cut by the Indian people. Yeah, I think uh, coming from that uh, country, I definitely observe this thing. And that's the reason I curiously asked this question uh, to the experts like you. <laughs> uh, yeah, moving forward, uh, how do you see the unfolding of future world order? And do you think, uh, will the world face any new political instability after uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict? The future world order uh, is a term that might not apply for our future, Bunkar. Why we look at this classical conflict from Ukraine, conventional if you want, well, apparently conventional, <laughs> because uh, I do myself, I believe it's actually more an intelligence conflict based on intelligence rather than on uh, uh, conventional means. Um, keeping in mind all the all those uh, I'm uh, repeating myself those means uh, that are uh, involved and used by different parties that uh, are taking part from this conflict. Um, It is certainly at more, uh, it is certainly more real for Europeans than the wars. uh, The conflict from Ukraine is more real for Europeans than the wars from Yemen, Syria, or Iraq. But at the same time, they are similar. It can, I can only say that the world order will be shaped by realistic brave, moral, and ethic individuals and societies as it has always been the case. In the context of both neoliberal and more social approaches, themselves not perfect, the conflict from Ukraine is both a historical reminder of how things can go really wrong and an alarm signal that structural premises of societies must be strengthened. Yes. I think the sentence that you mentioned about, you know, kind of key takeaways, it's very important. What we learn out of it. That's, uh, Uh, yeah. Uh, The the last uh, part that you mentioned just now about the Ukraine conflict, uh, like the key learning takeaways, uh, that uh, it's an alarming situation that things can go wrong. So uh, can you just a little bit, you know, one or two sentence uh, mention about, you know, like what key takeaways, uh, something that, you know, as an organization, as an expert, we should take away from this conflict? Uh, um, I'm skeptical regarding the outcome, uh, Omkar. Yeah. I, uh, I want, as a, as, a, uh, as a citizen of the world, as a mother, as a wife, as a normal human being, and also as a researcher and a lecturer, I believe and I, I hope in peace. I don't, I accept many things. I accept the war on resources. I mean, the wars, it means like, uh, but th- that war, which is behind this, the, the, uh, behind um, open, uh, I mean, which actually is dealt uh, through alliances, secret agreements and so on and so forth. I, I don't like the war in itself, as we can see it, even though there are only not so many people that are dying in Ukraine as it was to be in other wars. I, every single person that is dying, every single human being, child or man or woman that is dying in Ukraine is a, um, for me, for me, for Ekaterina Matsoi is a, is a um, I'm dying with that person. Myself, yeah. a little bit of myself is dying. 
It's a defeat of the of the humanity. It's a defeat of us as researcher, of us of those part that we are that part of society which is it must to protect the humanity. Yes. We know what's yes. happening. It's still we cannot do anything. Yeah. Uh, also, when I'm not scared, I'm concerned with the outcome because it's it is going to trigger not only it's going to trigger uh, instability in Europe. Somehow, you, the European Union, Europe in itself, the world continent, is going to pay a higher price that, than we can ever imagine. Yes. This, is, yes. this is what I'm concerned. It's not only Europe. I'm, here, I'm not talking about food crisis. I mean, uh, though it's a little bit too early because the war started two months ago, two months and so on. I don't know, not too much. Still, uh, the effects, we cannot feel still the effects of, the, of, the, of this war, this conflict when I'm thinking about the food. Yeah? Because we are going to feel it perhaps at the end of the year and more, more, more uh, accentuated during the next year. When um, it's about instability, it's about the borders, you know. Ukraine uh, is not part of the European Union. Yeah. Still, there are so many people that are traveling through Europe during this moment. Not all of them have good intentions. We don't know how many of them are uh, are working for whom. Uh, yeah. What are their intentions? It's about also the f- uh, far right extremists. I'm talking about extremists. Yeah. The real extremists. Have a look, not only at Azov. There are more than that. Uh, we are going to. Uh, it's not. Uh, let's go. Let's go back to the extremist organization. Have mentioned. You asked, uh, and you are concerned with your question. You said, okay, are going to be more extremist organization in uh, in Central Asia. I'm going also to remind you that what is an extremist organization is a bunch of people that are trained and paid. Actually, they are not uh, uh, they are not concentrated around an ideological uh, aim, but rather uh, based on money. Uh, they are paid, and this is very important. They don't care what is their name. They don't care if their name is Daesh. They don't care if their name is Azov. They don't care if their name is Wagner or uh, the uh, other uh, private military companies such as, uh, I don't know, there are so many. No, they, uh, they care only about money. And they, if they receive an order, they are going to fulfill it. And that's, that, that, that's it. Uh, and the, the, the most important is what's their next mission. It might be any country from Europe. It might be, I don't know, like you said, India, China, interest, or, uh, right? See, this is... Uh, it's about the insecurity uh, that are uh, that is going to be felt perhaps more more uh, even more uh, under different forms in the near future i mean perhaps in next 6 to maximum 1 month let's go a little bit further to develop a little bit further the refugees from ukraine now okay we have to it's normal to help it's it's a part of our nature as human beings right we are helping them. We provide their food and services. To, but uh, you know, at a certain point, even on even these societies, these European and educated societies, let's let's say it like that, uh, they are going to be fed up. There, there is going to be a limit, you know. And what's uh, how we are going to react in uh, six, one month, six months, one month? 
Let's, uh, let's give you an example. These days in Romania, for example, I've seen many Ukrainian cars, very expensive cars that were uh, running uh, actually without respecting the, uh, the speed limits, and uh, not only outside the towns, the, the, but also inside the cities, the cities. And their behavior is such a kind of, I can't do anything because, uh, yes, I'm a refugee and uh, uh, I can't do that. No, it's not like that. Yeah. At a certain yeah. point, the society is going, are going to react somehow. Uh, you know, the pressure. There are going to be a point when the, the reaction will start to appear and under different forms. And let's go in further. Uh, I'm talking about the instability. I'm talking about this uh, paid, uh, let's say, uh, foreign fighters. They're not quite foreign fighters. They are also from different countries, from European countries. They are from other countries. And, you know, it's like I remember just I'd like to remind you about the Al-Qaeda, uh, the Mujahideen that fight, uh, that were for, they fought in against the uh, Soviets in, uh, in Afghanistan. They were Mujahideen, their freedom, right? Freedom fighters. And they, they transformed themselves into what? Into terrorists, right? Yes. Where they were sent back to their homes. Let's have a look at Tunisia, for example. Tunisia these days, they have um, identified more than 100 uh, cells, terrorist cells in Tunisia. Uh, this is a very much security, is a very uh, important security threat to a state, which is also a poor state, such as Libya, uh, Tunisia, yes, which is next to Libya, not to mention that Algeria is nearby and also are thinking about gas and so on and so forth. Uh, it's not that easy to say, okay, it's going to be peace in Ukraine and everything will come back to normal. No, that normality will never come perhaps in more, I don't know, perhaps in 50 years from now on. Yes. If, if, please. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I was just uh, saying that uh, what you mentioned about the stability won't come possibly for 50 years. I very much align with that point uh, because looking at the past other countries who have gone through that destabilization they still haven't, you know, recovered from that conflict zone, especially the recent example, Afghanistan, even the current conflict, which is going on in the Yemen, Libya. So, yes, I very much align with that point. It will take time to come back to normal and the people are going to change. Alliances are going to change. I don't know what's going what's going to happen with the European Union as a uh, as an entity. I used to be very proud of, of uh, European Union. I used to be very proud as a European citizen, European Union citizen. Um, I was very much proud and I trust. I trusted. I have trusted the 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 leadership of the European Union. But step by step having a look of what's happening in uh, and the, the way they are dealing with the Ukrainian conflict. Actually, I'm very much disappointed. And um, now I know that in the end, what prevails, it's not the interests of the citizens, but the interests of the elites, Onkar. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, as we are approaching the conclusion part, uh, so as an expert in the international affairs, of what message would you like to give to future generation uh, stepping into this field of intelligence and security studies? <laughs> um, 
I always say, I'm always saying that no matter what kind of job you are doing, do your best. Do your best means to be informed, to speak the main languages that when and the, in the field that uh, are required in the field you are specialized, and and to be to be on the time uh, to be all the time uh, updated what's happening around you, and of course, uh, when it's about uh, giving an, uh, an advice in international relations. Now, it's very difficult to summarize the experience in a short advice, my experience in a short advice, and even more difficult to presume that uh, this will be beneficial for future developments because things are changing, Umkar. I only trust that uh, the new generations of intelligence and security officers will have the strength to thoroughly assess history and make a strong contribution to the development, to the societies they serve they will know when they will have achieved it. And this is as part, we should, we should differentiate between the intelligence and security officers and the researchers in security studies or intelligence studies, because the, those people that are, are going to work in the intelligence agencies, they are very clear, uh, I mean, um, orders, to follow, and they also have to respect ethics. When it's about uh, researchers, I mean, that are not part of these intelligence agencies, they should not forget about objectivity and uh, doing their part to achieve the greater good for the humankind. Yes, definitely. I think this is a very uh, good message that you mentioned about the researchers especially, because I have never seen, uh, you know, people talking more about from a researcher's point of view. Mainly people we we see from, you know, talking from an operational perspective in the intelligence segment. So, uh, how shall I say, how shall I put it? Intelligence is one thing, security in, is another thing. Both of them are working uh, as, as as domains as fields are di- are directed uh, normally um, to protect an entity a state. Yes. Once again, I'm scared that the the world order you have mentioned and you asked me about previously um, is going to face uh, a new type of challenge. It's about the disappearance of the of several states and the appearance of a new states. So, uh, and the only states that are going to survive are those states that are state nation, such as India, Egypt, China. Yes. You see? Yes. Yeah. And they have very much uh, potential to resist due to their connection between... No, it's very much for the person, for the people, for the citizen to be inner motivated. Uh, money are not enough from a certain point on car for most of us. They're important, but not more important than our values and principles. And I'm pretty sure that uh, those people are going to exactly, like I said in the previous question, they are going to change the world. Those people that are going to keep and to protect and to maintain their principles and values. 
Yes, definitely. I think thank you very much uh, for this session. Uh, I think uh, we have taken a lot more time of you. And firstly, uh, very, very thankful to you uh, to provide such a perspective on this critical topic because uh, this topic is very broad. And I think uh, the kind of series of few minor questions that have popped up, uh, especially on the infrastructure of the intelligence and all, uh, we can definitely have other sessions in the near future whenever you will be available. So yeah, once again, thank you very much, Ekaterina, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Omkar, for having me. And uh, I wish you very much good luck uh, in your uh, future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.